everyone, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, ED senior reporter Matt Mace travels to Cambridge to find out how the university is aiming to attract new staff for a sustainable community built from scratch. What came to be is the Northwest Cambridge development, and the first part of that is Eddington, uh, which is a new community that will ultimately be home to about eight and a half thousand people. So we're in the midst of the first phase of development and we're hoping to uh, complete that uh, in the next year. And Insight Editor George Ogilby joins outdoor apparel firm turned activists Patagonia for a night at the movies to discuss how some green energy projects don't always generate the benefits you think they would. I think it's a requirement that in all of our dimensions of life, whether it's the businesses we operate in or our personal impact on the planet or in the role of government, I think is that we're constantly assessing and learning. So, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I'm ED Senior Reporter Matt Mace and today I'll be guiding you through interviews related to sustainable construction and environmental activism. I'm joined today by our Insight Editor, George Ogilby. George, uh, before we sink our teeth into these two exclusive interviews, care to share with the readers what you've been working on? You've been pretty much glued to the news desk this week in my absence, so what stories have grabbed your attention? That's right, yeah, I have been somewhat chained to the desk <laughs> this week, uh, as uh, other others of us uh, swanning off to uh, gay purry. Yeah, exactly. As, uh, that's something for you all to look forward to on um, one of our future episodes, and I'll, I'll discuss it in more details. But yeah, um, I have been working, and I, I use that term rather loosely, in, in Paris this week. Mm, mm, it's all right for some, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, as you've uh, been uh, eating your croissants and uh, drinking lovely French wine, I've been, uh, I've been working like a Trojan in the office. <laughs> um, lots of good... Uh, news coming out from the corporate sphere this week. Lots of big commitments from um, especially top retailers. Mm. One story that stood out for me in particular um, came from Iceland, uh, which we know has been leading uh, the corporate sustainability agenda in recent months with its plastic packaging removal um, target. Yeah, they, they kind of just came out of out of nowhere um, mm. from from kind of not knowing much about the sustainability strategy at all to all of a sudden yeah being not the vanguard of the leaders it's been mm. a real a real nice transformation to to watch well i mean it's only just started so we don't know how it's going to go but mm. yeah early signs have been no, really impressed with them definitely the steps have been encouraging um again this week we saw another big commitment from them this time they vowed to remove uh palm oil from all of their own brand food products by the end of this year which is incredible to the fact that they've got suppliers on board with this mm. um managed to get the rest of the company uh, in, the, in the place where they can make this commitment. As we know, palm oil um, can be quite destructive uh, in global supply chains. You know, palm oil wood pole plantations are one of the biggest drivers in, uh, in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, great commitment. Um, what I was particularly pleased to see were the comments from the managing director, Richard Walker. Um, and he, he said how he felt passionately about the importance of raising awareness of this issue. He said he, he'd recently been on a trip to Indonesia where he'd seen the environmental devastation caused by um, palm oil production. Um, so, I mean, this for me is encouraging to see you know a chief executive of a, of a top retailer yeah. showing this leadership in the area of sustainability. Um, hopefully, you know, it, it lights a torch for his um, competitors to follow suit. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I didn't I didn't know that about the piece actually because usually when when like the board get involved or a CEO comes out and, and champions a sustainability initiative, it's usually quite a broad climate mm. change mm. approach. So to actually see them dive into a specific area is is is, is nice. It's nice. Um, well, for me, I think you can count the news pieces I've produced on on one hand. <laughs> I like the fact that companies like uh, BP who aren't exactly uh, the most liked amongst the sustainability professionals, um, and Google, so two huge firms and, and giants in their respective sectors, they both unveiled blueprints for energy storage projects, which mm. is quite significant. Um, so BP actually have plans in place to use Tesla technology on their wind farms in uh, South Dakota, I do believe. Mm. Google is a bit more vague. They just said they'd like to use energy storage by the end of this year, mm. which is quite a short time frame. Um, but we found so far at ED that a lot of the solar projects, uh, not solar projects, sorry, storage projects, they're often community-based, yeah. led by universities or mm. just domestic installations. Um, so the fact that two big businesses have come out um, and announced plans, as vague as Google's is at the moment in this area, is is quite a, a landmark moment for, for energy storage. And um, speaking to uh, speaking of landmarks, um, I recently travelled to Cambridge, um, where just off the M11, a uh, lifeless landscape of partially arable land has since been transformed or is going through the transformation as we speak into a, a billion-pound urban district featuring some of the UK's most impressive sustainability innovations, um, ranging from an underground uh, bin system designed to create zero waste to uh, one of the largest rainwater harvesting systems in the country. Um, it seems a bit random for a university to collaborate with um, the wider district to create a sustainable community hub. So uh, I, I got on a, a rather early morning train up to Cambridge um, to speak to Heather Topol, who is the project manager of the Northwest Cambridge Development um, Project, to discuss the origins of the project what features were on board, um, why it's been put in place, and what expansion plans are there for the future. Um, it sounds quite vague, it sounds uh, quite all-encompassing, and, and I've left it that way for a reason, because uh, the tour of the district was uh, really eye-opening. It's, it's a no-stone-unturned approach to sustainability, and um, and there will be um, written pieces accompanying it, but but for now, I'm sitting down in one of the uh, one of the new accommodation flats with Heather to discuss the project. So here is that interview uh, for you in full. So, hello, Heather. Uh, nice to finally meet you. Yes, very good to meet you too. Uh, thank you for inviting me out here to Cambridge on, I, I suppose, good weather um, compared to the last few, yes, few months. Yes, absolutely. It's yeah. been nicer to walk around today than it has been for the past few weeks. Yeah, I was, I was a bit worried we'd be walking through a snowstorm, but uh, weather's, <laughs> weather's held out. Um, I suppose then I should start right at the beginning. The, the reason why I'm here and the reason we are currently sitting in a kind of a, a new build flat for, for one of the, um, well, for what will be staff at university what what's what's the reason behind this whole project and the reason it's taken such a big focus on sustainability in particular right so i should start at the beginning the 
Cambridge University started to realise as early as the 1980s that if we wanted to attract and retain staff in an ever more competitive global market, we needed to do something to address the housing issues in Cambridge. It was becoming more and more unaffordable uh, in the 1980s and that's become even, even more of a problem today. And we're finding that our staff, if, they, if we want to attract them, they tend, they'll, they'll often live either in house shares in the city centre that could be quite expensive or have to live quite far afield in the surrounding villages of Cambridge, which then puts pressure on transport infrastructure and, and also their ability to live near to where they work. And so we started to investigate whether we could do something to help to address that. And what came to be is the Northwest Cambridge development. And the first part of that is Eddington, uh, which is a new community uh, as part of Cambridge that will ultimately be home to about eight and a half thousand people. Uh, so we're in the midst of the first phase of development and we're hoping to uh, complete that uh, in the next year. And that will provide 700 homes for university staff who earn below a certain income threshold, mm -hmm. uh, as well as student accommodation, local centre facilities like a school and a community centre, doctor's surgery and shops, uh, sports pitches and, uh, and all the infrastructure that's needed to support that. But to your question about why we set our ambitions so high, the university is a long-term player here in Cambridge. We have 800 years of history with the city, and, and we hope to have that much more in our future. And so when we realized that we needed to address these housing needs, we also knew that we wanted to create a place that people would want to live. It's not just about what happens inside your flat. It's mm -hmm. about what happens mm -hmm. around you and the impact you have on your surroundings. And so we set uh, set environmental and sustainability standards for how the development would come about to try to manage the impact of the development uh, on the environment, but also trying to think about how our staff and also the wider Cambridge community can lead more sustainable lives. Okay, and I mean, the, it, so it was born out of this, this, this housing price and, and the idea to retain talent, but um, I'm, so I imagine, you know, the, the cost of the, the place is, is a big factor for the students and for the staff, but um, Edenton has, has quite an impressive, or it's building up quite an impressive um, sounding resume in regards to sustainability. Mm. And I mean, I can look out in the, in the flats behind us and the kind of, the clad-ins on the windows are all very funky. It's kind of like a grayscale giraffe neck. Um, <laughs> which it's a leaf. Yeah, oh, okay, it's leaf. So oh, I, I see giraffe neck. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and we've walked around and we've seen firsthand how the new builds are kind of integrating natural ventilation, um, mm. And we've we've gone into the energy centre and had a look at the CHP systems. What why the big focus on um, sustainability in terms of energy costs? Is that a big factor for the, for the staff and students coming here, or is it just that's a that's a great selling point, or is it just the fact that it helps reduce costs for them as well? Um, I think it's all of all of that and and more. We. Um... The university is a little bit different from large-scale housing developers in that we're we're not simply here to build houses, mm. sell houses, and then move on. So actually quite a lot of the properties that we've built will be managing and maintaining. And so we have an interest in making sure that they have some longevity to them mm -hmm. uh, in, in doing that. Uh, we've always set the our standard as being sustainable, long-lasting, and ambitious. And so we have wanted to really raise the bar. And so that has, as you say, everything to do with internal standards of buildings. So things that make it a nicer place to live. So looking at floor to ceiling heights and how well well lit by daylight some of the bedrooms are, providing for um, 
waste separation in the properties mm. through to making sure that properties don't overheat uh, or also making sure that we can manage our carbon usage and energy consumption. So that's that's both about how we provide it, but also how we generate electricity. Mm -hmm. So we have photovoltaics on, on pretty much all of the rooftops across the first phase. Uh, so it's really just a rounded approach. Some of that's driven by the university, some of that's driven by our staff and what they'd like to see, uh, and also thinking about our impact uh, overall. Yeah, I mean, in this in this apartment right now, I see the little um, the uh, the food compost bin in the corner, and, and you mentioned that the bins are segregated. But I, I look outside, I can't see uh, a kind of black bin, a green bin at all. There's these there's these rather futuristic silver looking bins that kind of stick out in in freeze. And I I know it's part of this innovative new waste collection system. But um, if you could perhaps explain to sure. to the listeners how how that works. Yes, so we have a wheelie bin free, free uh, neighborhood here in Eddington, uh, and what uh, what we've done in it, in their place is we've have communal underground bins. So within a certain number of meters of every single front door on the, on the whole the whole site, uh, even if you're on a block of flats and you need to walk internally within to get to the lift, we've taken that into account. We make sure that within a certain number of meters of your front door, there's an opportunity for you to uh, discard mixed rubbish, uh, recycling, or, or paper batteries, and they're collected separately. Uh, they're stored in underground uh, bins, which are uh, within the streets, uh, so they take up about the same size as a, as a car parking space. And at different times throughout the week, a city council-run bin lorry will come along and collect, uh, collect the rubbish or recycling from that. And so it means we don't have street clutter. Sometimes in Cambridge, on some of the terrace streets of Cambridge, on bin day, you can't actually walk down the pavement <laughs> because it's so cluttered with wheelie bins. And, and we really wanted to do something different that both remove the wheelie bin issue, but also brought recycling uh, and consumption issues really to the front front of everyone's mind it, it's an innovative system as, as well in the sense that that collection is, is driven by kind of smart tech um mm. sensors that that essentially negate the need for a, for a collection day yes. which is a key yes. driver yeah so there isn't bin day first of all there's no wheelie bin to remember to put out <laughs> anyway uh but also the bin the bins are empty the communal bins are emptied uh, on a irregular basis there's a sensor that uh determines when it's a certain percentage full and that will then uh, notify the lorry driver to mm. come and collect at that at that uh, at that time and no. so it means that we can run a more efficient system as well it sounds like the dream thursday's always been day for me for me back home so um <laughs> yeah that, that'd be a that'd be a lovely thing to be able yes. to pick up across across the uk and um you know i mentioned this is my first time i've ever ever been to cambridge um and um in the in the journey over to edinton i, I did notice a lot of cyclists already i know it's a very flat area <laughs> but you mentioned um you mentioned the transport aspect of, of the lorries and I mean obviously there's not many cars around in now because it's still in development but I, I, I understand that one of the aims is to really kind of <clears throat> reduce the amount of cars that are driving around Eddington. Yes absolutely we we have a goal that when we finish no more than 40% of the journeys that people take to work will be by car. Mm. So what we've really tried to do is is make sure that people have good other options. So you're right, in Cambridge, cycling is what everyone thinks of as their first way of getting around, and we have uh, an advantage of having you know, a pretty flat environment to encourage that. But it may, we have dedicated cycle lanes, our own, if you're familiar with London Transport, our own cycle superhighway called the Ridgeway that mm -hmm. runs through the cycle. It's just outside our door here. And, and also we have bike loan schemes, uh, bike training, doctor bike sessions so that people can learn how to fix their bikes uh, if they'd like it. We'll have over 12,000 places to, to lock up your bike on the site. And, um, and then we also, have, we recognize not everyone's gonna get on their bike at all times. Uh, so we've been 
uh, subsidizing a bus service that provides buses on f every 15 minute frequency that will get you from the heart of Eddington straight to the station, mm -hmm. uh, going through the city center on the way. And we have free car club membership for residents on the site. And so we have our first car club cars are here. So really people feel that they need to use a car for the occasional trip, but don't want to have to deal with all of the administration and, and added cost of having a car, uh, whether that's tax or insurance or parking, mm. et cetera, then they have access to a car club that they can use for ad hoc journeys as well. And so it's good to see there's a kind of ride sharing scheme in place there. Is, is there plans to integrate electric vehicles into that at all? Uh, yes, we're working with the car club operators to discuss that. And we're also going to be installing some electric vehicle charging points okay. on the streets as Brilliant. well. Good to hear. So we, we've covered off the buildings, we've covered off the waste, we've covered off the transport. So I, I suppose it kind of leaves, and we mentioned earlier the, the energy centre mm. with the, the CHP units in it. So I'm right in thinking that... Um, the, uh, you mentioned earlier how many people are going to be living here, but all, all, essentially all their kind of heating needs and, and a lot of their electricity will be provided by the on-site solar and the CHP systems. Yes, yeah, so, so everyone's connected to the district heating network mm -hmm. uh, on the site, and so they will have all of their heating and hot water come from that communal system. Uh, and uh, it is metered, so people it's not that people can draw freely from that, yeah. um, because we want people to also recognize what their usage levels are. It's part of a behavioral change and uh, but they'll receive all of their heating and hot water from that from that communal system and that's true not just for our staff but also for the other residents who move on to the site as well because Eddington of course is a mixed community mm. not just university staff we have people who will be buying homes here as well we walked we walked across there earlier I was trying to get some recording done but um, there's still construction going on so it was it was a bit too noisy for the podcast mm. but um, the the walk around the the little lake was mm -hmm. was very picturesque um, considering it's right next to the motorway, which you can't actually can't actually see quite well, but um, it's not just there for biodiversity reasons and and pictures. Although I know that is mm -hmm. is, a, is a fact. Um, I saw a couple of uh, like ducks and stuff swimming on the pond, which is good to see already. Um, but it, it's to help with, um, and it's part of. I'm right in thinking the UK's largest um, water recycling system. Yes. Um, so, so how, how does that work? Yes, yes. so we, um, if you can believe it, and maybe it hasn't felt this way over the past few weeks, but we actually are in a semi-arid part of the country here. Mm. And, uh, and we wanted to try to do two things, really. Um, first, try to reduce the amount of water consumption that people have, because water is a scarce resource. And mm -hmm. so if we, can, if we could devise a way of recycling it on site, then that would be, uh, that would be a good outcome. Uh, and also, there's a nearby village called Girton that has problems with flooding. And so we wanted to see whether we could assist with, with some of their flooding issues. And so we've actually um, made use of uh, a small slope on the site to collect surface water from, from the development. And we, we collect it in uh, a series of lakes along the edge of the development. And it does two things there. And on a day like today, a beautiful sunny day like yeah. today, uh, where we don't have to worry about flooding, uh, it, we're holding it there and we're, we're tr we'll be treating the water and then recycling it back up into the development. Uh, and that means that we can use it for irrigating the landscape, but also for water for flushing toilets or washing machines. And in doing that, we can reduce the water consumption on site too. Our predictions are it'll be about half of the Cambridge average. So we can really reduce the potable water consumption. Uh, but also, if... if it was extreme rainfall outside. Um, we're also going to be holding the water in those lakes and making sure that we only very, very carefully release it into a nearby mm. watercourse. So it should help in terms of flood mitigation for for our nearby village. Okay, brilliant. So it sounds like Eddington's ticking off all the kind of the, the major boxes <clears throat> when it comes to, I suppose, a, a sustainable community. And I know, I know, there's a couple of of um, buildings that are being lived in right now. Some of the students have moved in. Um, where, whereabouts are we on the timeline of the project mm -hmm. and, and what's, what's next? Yes. Um, 
Well, we're in the midst of the first phase of development. So that includes about 700 homes for our staff mm -hmm. and about the same for sale. So um, by, the, by the end of this year, all of those mm -hmm. homes for staff will be occupied and the homes for sale will be gradually occupied. The, we've also built all of the local center facilities. So the supermarket Sainsbury's has been open since September. Our primary school has been open since uh, 2015. In fact, it's in its third year okay. now. Uh, and we only very recently opened the Stories Field Center, which is a community center and performing arts center. Um, so, so we expect that for the first phase, the university will be finished this year. Uh, and then we, of course, have probably two more phases to come. So as we gradually ramp up to, in total, about 3,000 homes. But you mentioned sustainability. I mean, it is important for us to put in all of those sort of hard measures, whether mm. that's lakes or recycling or transport measures. But it's also about building a community in general. And so we've, we've equally been turning our mind to well, what's going to make this tick. What's going to make people really want to come and live here and be part of Eddington? Mm. And we are at the moment programming events for all of the sp open spaces and, and public squares throughout the summer. The Stories Field Center, we've, we've held our first events there, which included the Pale Waves, uh, came along. And uh, we had a Kaylee there last week, and we'll be hosting uh, the Swing Festival next weekend. So it's, it's about some of the physical infrastructure that we can put in, but also trying to provide the sort of right spaces for people to come together and be part of the community and that's what we're really focused on over the course of the next year yeah i suppose it, it's all good and well when we when when we get these blueprints come in for these you know ultra sustainable new developments but um, especially in a case like eddington built on formless and lifeless um, areas which was just essentially farmland that was been not used I suppose that community aspect is really key because there's more to a, a city than what it runs on and, and it's the people that live in it. So that's a really good aspect to see. And you mentioned the primary school and I know you are about to be quizzed by a few of them. Yes, I have some primary <laughs> school uh, students coming in to talk to me later on today. And well, I hope I hope this has been adequate warm up. I, I'm, <laughs> yes, I'm, I think no, so. no doubt their, their interview techniques will be much stronger than, than mine. So um, <laughs> with that in mind, I'll, I'll let you prep for that. But um, Eva, thank you very much for your time today. Good. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So there you have it, and as I mentioned, um, a written feature is being published uh, on ED. In, in fact, it could already be online, depending on when you're listening to this, that explains the, uh, the Eddington story and goes into greater detail on some of the main features of the area. So if you're passionate about rainwater harvesting, CHP systems and uh, underground automated bin systems, and, and let's be honest, aren't we all, um, then do head over to the website to find out more. But don't go there just yet, um, because right now George is going to explain his most recent trip to the cinema, excluding um, that Fifty Shades viewing I know you mm. must have gone to recently. Well, you weren't supposed to tell anyone about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. So um, spent uh, last night uh, at the movies, um, but this wasn't just purely for pleasure. This was uh, on, on business. Um, so clothing brand Patagonia, as I'm sure all our listeners are, are well aware, uh, big environmental activists, not just you know your typical outdoor apparel brand. Um, they've launched this new documentary as part of a, a multimedia campaign um, aimed at protecting the, the Baltic region mm. uh, from more than 3,000 proposed hydropower projects. Uh, and... This film is meant to bring international awareness to a potential environmental disaster. Um, so yeah, just a bit of context um, before we listen to uh, this interview. Um, 
Patagonia's joining with local communities, NGOs in Bosnia, Albania, Macedonia to put pressure on the foreign developers and banks that are pouring over um, 700 million euros to fund the, the dam building projects. Um, and I know we all think, you know, hydropower is, is a clean, reliable um, energy source. Yeah. So you're thinking, why, why is this a major issue? Um, well, it was made clear to me last night when I went to watch this film that it all is not as it seems, um, apparently, on the, on the surface. Um, hydropower itself can produce methane, scientists have shown, which can be detrimental to the environment. But not only that, it can be causing uh, very detrimental effects to the nearby communities, uh, environment and wildlife. Um, so. Uh, in the Baltic region, which is one of the only regions in Europe which hasn't had um, hydropower plants installed, okay. um, which is why uh, Patagonia is focusing its efforts here. Mm. Um, one third of the dams uh, and diversions planned with the, are within sensitive protected areas, including 118 national parks. Um, and it's, it's feared that if fierce local opposition fails, um, then communities will be displaced and the last undammed watersheds on the continent will be irreversibly damaged. Um, so yeah, as we mentioned, I was fortunate enough to be invited by Patagonia to along, along to a pre-screening of the documentary film um, called Blue Heart. Um, so yeah, this was in East London, um, Shoreditch. is a really charming, quaint cinema um, kitted out with plush armchairs and cashmere blankets. Very, so very shortage. Yeah, but yeah <laughs> definitely. Um, Jam-packed with um, 50 or so journalists. Okay. Um, yeah, incredibly moving documentary, which follows the stories. Um, three sets of communities in the Baltic region threatened by the construction of these hydropower plants. Uh, during the film, we see how rare Baltic lynx has become an endangered species hmm. due to um, the drought caused by these uh, plants being constructed. We also see which I found really quite powerful was um, women from a village in, in Bosnia who sat night and day for the last year in a peaceful protest to protect their community's rivers um, and their only source of drinking water. It was actually quite shocking at one point to see how, how they were forcibly removed by a special unit of the Albanian government. But I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who wants to watch the film, but I mean, I would thoroughly recommend it. Um, so yeah, just before the film, I caught up with Patagonia's general manager of Europe and the Middle East, Ryan Geller, uh, who gave a very compelling argument as to why the company felt obliged to get involved, not only in this issue, but in, in similar projects of his type in the sustainability agenda. Uh, he's also someone who's become very personally affected by the development, having um, been on the front line of protests standing outside the Al Albanian oh, wow. um, parliament, yeah. but he will go into further detail in this interview. Um, so yeah, um, here's this interview of Ryan Gellert, who was telling me why this fight to save the Baltic rivers is too important to ignore. So I've just arrived at the Electric Cinema in uh, East London for the pre-screening of Patagonia's latest documentary film, Blue Heart, which depicts the battle to save the largest undammed river in Europe. Um, so I'm sat here in the cinema itself, very intimate environment, beautiful uh, cinema, I think about 50 seats here, um, oh, really, really looks like it's going to be something special. Uh, I'm sat in here 
alongside Patagonia's general manager of Europe and the Middle East, um, Ryan Geller. So thanks for inviting us along today, Ryan. Delighted to be here. Uh, thanks, George. Pleasure um, to be here with you. You must be really looking forward to watching the premiere this evening. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I was able to watch the film with all of our employees in our Amsterdam headquarters a week ago. And, um, you know, despite having seen a bunch of edits of the film as it was being developed, um, uh, it was. I was just blown away by how well it takes a really complex set of stories and distills them down and just do a beautiful 40-minute piece. So really, really pleased with how it came together. Mm, I'm really looking forward to watching it myself. Um, perhaps it would be a good idea for you to start um, by telling us your thoughts on why we're here today and um, without giving too much away, uh, what we can expect to see uh, from the film itself. Yeah, the film is, as I mentioned, a 40-minute piece, and it really highlights an issue that I think is um, not well understood. Um, I think it's one that, you know, for myself, um, I think I've just come to develop a deeper knowledge and appreciation for in the last couple of years, and that is two things. One is the um, impact of hydropower, which doesn't sound on its face like a very sexy topic, um, and another is the impact of hydropower specifically um, in the Balkan Peninsula. And so I think what many of us think about when we think about that region is conflict mm -hmm. and war. And just, uh, I think, in general, probably our overall IQ is people from Western Europe, or in my case, the U.S., isn't that high about the region. And what we've come to understand and what I think the film does an amazing job of really um, articulating is that partially because of politics, partially because of its history, mm. that region's really been lightly developed. And in, as a result of that, it's got some of the last free-flowing rivers in all of Europe. Mm. That's the good news. The bad news is there's nearly 3,000 hydropower projects and diversions that are planned for the region. And that's really what's captured in the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I've seen the film trailer, um, which I must say I found very moving. So in the short clip, we hear from people who live close to the river who explain how you know the whole community's journey in life is tied to the river, uh, and the fact that for them the river is a lifeline, um, and, and you know it's with without this river communities would would lose the basis of their existence. Um, I found it quite powerful watching actually the trailers to see the, the women from a village uh, in in Bosnia who sat day and night uh, for almost a year mm -hmm. uh, in peaceful protest to protect their community's rivers. Uh, uh, and their only source of drinking water. Um, I mean, as a global community, we, we're witnessing a shift towards cleaner energy, which which is brilliant. Um, you know, we're seeing policymakers, the corporate sphere, um, making bold commitments to move us towards uh, a low carbon future. But as we as we make that shift, um, I suppose it's important to understand, you know, the potential for unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so indeed, this campaign highlights itself that. No energy source destroys nature on such a, a level as hydropower. So, you know, bearing this in mind, how do we ensure that businesses and, and nations can balance that en clean energy and the benefits that it brings uh, with the unintended consequences to the environment? I think you've I think you've articulated it perfectly. Which is, you know, I think for us as a business, one of the things that we often preach is is the value, the need, and in many ways, kind of the the pain in the ass. If I'm honest about really leading in a considered life. And by considered life, I think how we think of it is, is really being honest with ourselves about the impact of our decisions. Mm. And as you would expect, it's not a snapshot. Um, you learn as you go. And so I think to take that to an energy con uh, context, you know, we didn't know how bad coal was some number of generations mm. ago. We know more today. We didn't know about the impacts of hydro as well 
in the past as we do today. And I think we have a, I think it's a requirement that in all of our dimensions of life, whether it's the businesses we operate in or our personal impact on the planet or in the role of government, I think is that we're constantly assessing and learning. Mm -hmm. And we're committed to not just relying on a knowledge base that becomes dated pretty quickly. And so I think with Hydro, our goal is to is to help shift the dialogue around some of the unfortunate impacts of and destructive impacts of hydro that I think are not widely discussed. I think it's generally thought of as clean and green energy, and we f- we feel very strongly uh, that that's not the case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk about Patagonia's involvement uh, mm-hmm. in the film. Um, Patagonia's launched a, a multimedia campaign, including a new website, as well as mm-hmm. a petition aimed at international banks to stop um, pouring over 700 million euros right. uh, to fund the, the dam building project. So, uh, how did how did Patagonia first become involved uh, in the scheme? And, and an extension of that question: Why is it so important for Patagonia as a brand uh, to uh, to get involved in projects which deliver environmental and social good? Yeah, that's um, you know the very quick history of um, you know there's a we've been involved in enviro campaigns around the world for a long time mm. and, and we we engage in a bunch of different ways on a range of issues around the world uh, the earliest one actually is an example of us providing some modest financing and some physical space to somebody that was working to protect and ultimately rehabilitate a heavily damaged river called the Ventura River, which flows behind our headquarters in Ventura, California. So we've been working in some capacity on rivers for really the whole history of Patagonia. Mm-hmm. We financed um, a film called Damnation in 2014 that mm-hmm. talked extensively about the impact of dams. I think in this particular campaign, it really came, you know, we, we tax ourselves 1% of our revenue every year. And we take that money and we distribute it to small grassroots organizations working on issues of, of soil or air or water um, protection. And one of those groups, or a few of those groups actually, because there's a disparate group of, of grantees who are in the Balkan Peninsula, mm-hmm. different countries, and engaging on this issue in different ways. So that was kind of the initial nexus of the whole thing. Um, that led to a few of us, myself included, going and spending time in the region. And I just think it's impossible to, and you'll see, I think you'll feel this in the film when you watch it this evening, mm. to go into that region and see these places. Um, in the case of my first trip to uh, Albania, being able to float down the Viosa River mm. um, and meet the people and not feel emotionally connected to both. Mm. And I think for many of us, that's, you know, it was those initial contacts and it was going into the region. And I think ultimately what we asked ourselves is, uh, beyond just giving money to these organizations, what else can we do? And I think where we feel we can have the biggest impact is is focusing on issues that are often overlooked or mm-hmm. misunderstood. And I think hydropower in the Balkan Peninsula is both. And what we have is a brand that is is you know reasonably well known um, around the world. And we've got a large community of people that we have relationships with. And I think we're pretty good storytellers. Mm-hmm. And so we felt like let's combine those things and let's figure out what the call to action is. And let's activate this. Let's do something for this set of issues in this region and these people that they probably would be challenged to do themselves. And that's create the kind of content and campaign that, um, that we're here to launch this evening.
I mean, as, as you as you mentioned very articulately, this campaign reflects uh, Patagonia's long-standing role and commitment uh, to uh, the climate and, and environment mm -hmm. uh, activities. So, I mean, it's always refreshing to see a multinational company as yourself um, showing a strong willingness to go beyond the company boundaries um, to find collaborators who they can work with on developing solutions uh, to major sustainability issues. Um, how, how is this messaging and you know the strong ethos mm -hmm. in, at the heart of uh, Patagonia? How does this build trust and and, and strengthen the relationship with its customers? I think what you know for people that have had uh, a long relationship with Patagonia, I'd like to think that what they feel is is that we're they understand the level of commitment that I think Patagonia has to this. You know our mission statement. The first part is build the best product that probably speaks for itself. The second part, although it always sounds a bit like a mouthful, is is do no unnecessary harm, which in essence means minimize our impact on the planet. And again, as I said earlier, just continue to challenge ourselves to do a better and better job as we learn more, understand mm -hmm. our own business and supply chain better, and technology advances. And the third piece, which really I think applies here, is use business to implement and inspire solutions to the environmental crisis. So it's it's embedded in our reason for being. Mm -hmm. And as a company that makes product for the outdoors, we've got a vested, you could even say selfish interest in, in making sure that wild places around the world, um, ecosystems and biodiversity continue to exist in the future. I mean, I can speak for myself and say, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to be able to live and climb and travel um, and snowboard around the world and, and spend time in a lot of really wild remote places and that's defined my life and uh, it's it's been at the, the root of so many of the relationships I have in my life and I think that I'm no different than many employees and people associated with the brand and I think that people who know the brand well have come to appreciate or believe and understand the level of commitment that Patagonia has there. I think for people that have, have come to the brand more recently, and you know, we have grown quite a bit, and mm -hmm. so I think we're we're sort of interacting with a broader set of community. You know, I think we feel we've got a responsibility to do more than just monetize those relationships, but instead to be a catalyst for positive social change uh, mm -hmm. on behalf of the health of the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, Patagonia is um, a fantastic. Uh, example of, uh, of how a, a major outdoor clothing brand should have it, uh, its business model and a great example to um, other retailers. Um, so is, is this type of active role in community something that brands don't do enough of, do you find? I, I think none of us do enough. I mean, if you look at, uh, let's take um, maybe instead of pointing at others' uh, mm. lack of commitment, I'll, I'll use ourselves as an example to make a broad point here. Mm. We've been in business for 45 years, and I think that those elements of the mission statement that I articulated, the amount of eco-innovation that we've brought, um, and, and much of which we've open-sourced to the industry, the amount of money we've given away, which is nearing $100 million through our 1% commitment, and, and you know all the other pieces, we're proud of those things, but in the 45 years we've been doing it, the reality is the population of the earth has gone from 4.3 billion to 7 billion people, and it's you know it's pretty predictably headed towards north of 10 billion people. Mm -hmm. The global economy's grown fivefold. I think that uh, biodiversity is is the health of of global biodiversity is is degrading at a level that scientists didn't even foresee yet a decade ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when we hold up when we look at the metrics of the health of the planet, 
It's incredibly sobering. And so to your question, are companies doing enough? Mm -hmm. Not at all, or this wouldn't be the world we're living in. Are we doing enough? No, probably not. And that's why we're continuing to elevate our level of commitment and activism. Um, and I think that uh, there's a responsibility for individuals, there's a responsibility for companies, and there's a responsibility for governments. And although there is a lot of momentum and a lot of discussion, I don't think collectively we're anywhere close to doing enough. Mm, mm, no, I would um, I would agree with that point. Um, I mean, not we're not doing enough, but I mean, companies like yourself is definitely showing the way that we should be progressing um, on on an up, upward curve. I mean, for much of the firm's existence, Patagonia has been the leading edge uh, of efforts to steer the clothing industry in a more sustainable direction. Um, we ED have uh, provided much coverage even in the last 12 months uh, of Patagonia sustainability efforts uh, ranging from the donation of the sales uh, Black mm -hmm. Friday mm -hmm. uh, through to the recent launch of a new digital platform mm -hmm. uh, which connects c customers with local environmental groups to encourage grassroots activism. Um, looking ahead on the horizon, uh, what, what can we expect to see? Um, what projects are Patagonia working on other than this one uh, in the area of sustainability? Uh, and yeah, what can we expect to see in the future? You know, I think at a really uh, macro level, I think what people can expect to see from Patagonia is us continue to elevate our commitment to not just supporting and funding activists, but becoming more activist ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. I think two big issues for us right now, and, and these are not, you know, I, I struggle to even use the word campaign because I think mm -hmm. it, that suggests it's a point in time, and mm -hmm. I think this is these are broader than that, but the Blue Heart campaign is really one of those, and we've been involved with um, this issue in this region for nearly three years now, and although the film is coming out now, there's going to be a lot of discussion around this, we're pushing the petition on the website platform um, for this period of time. This is a campaign uh, and an issue, set of issues that we intend to be involved in for the long haul. I think another one that, uh, unfortunately, we found ourselves very involved in and, and will be uh, will, will remain that way until the issue resolves itself, if it does, is public lands in the U.S. Um, you know, the last administration, we were very involved in trying to create and protect some large national monuments mm -hmm. in the western U.S., and this current administration's rolled back those protections, and that's an issue that concerns us greatly. Mm. And so that's one that we've been very involved in, very vocal about, very visible mm. um, on our website and and elsewhere. And um, you know we're gonna we're gonna remain that way. Mm. I think relative to how we run the business, you know, ultimately we want to scale the business. We want to build the business in such a way that no matter how much product we sell in the future, how many operations, how many warehouses and offices and stores we run that our impact on the planet is less in the future than it is today. I think often people hold up Patagonia as an example of a sustainable company, and the reality is we're not a sustainable company because we take more from the planet than it has to offer. And what we are, if anything, is a responsible company. And I think that we are continuing to challenge ourselves to make a transition from just being a responsible company that constantly is looking at our impact and trying to minimize it to one that's actually taking less from the planet than the planet can restore. And I think that's really the goal that we have. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, the truly in, uh, inspiring insight there, Ryan. So thank you very much. Um, we look forward to seeing how this uh, campaign progresses. We look forward to seeing what Patagonia does in the future to drive that sustainable future. But for now, I think uh, that's it. We can. Uh, 
now sit down and uh, enjoy the film. So thanks very much, Ryan. George, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's that's some really fascinating stuff. I was I was really um, excited about that interview when I when I heard it was happening. Patagonia are a company I really like. I really resonate with. I think they're a, a prime example of brand that, that has their purpose just nailed mm. nailed to their sleeves and their their consumers really buy into it. Um, I was actually hoping to attend that one uh, mm. myself, especially now I've learned there was free popcorn and whatnot on the go. <laughs> um, uh, but unfortunately, my other half, rather inconsiderate of her, I, I think, um, had had her birthday that day. So um, I was I was on birthday duty. But you know, <clears throat> Georgie did a great job of that interview. Patagonia Company, we've tried to get hold of for for a while now, mm. and um, yeah, it's great to see that their general manager as well sure. was, was attending and yeah. was so passionate about it. Yeah. All um, again, prime example of just how that company bleeds environmental activism. Mm. Um, so really interesting stuff, and I'm starting to think. Um, that George should have been put on birthday duty and I, I should have gone to the to the view myself. Um, but that whole theme, that whole topic, I think is a great way to end this uh, podcast episode. I know I'm going to go home and watch Blue Heart now, um, mm. first chance I get. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd encourage all our listeners to, to do the same. Um, but first, the usual reminder that this podcast is available on iTunes or via the ED website. Just search Sustainable Business Covered. Um, and we've got a load of great episodes coming up in the pipeline, um, including times to UK Coffee Week, uh, the aforementioned trip to Paris to test the waters, quite literally, uh, of a new sustainable tourist attraction. Um, we've got the build-up coming up to ED Live, which is uh, a couple of months away now. No, a month away now. Oh, that's that's quite scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the Green Room will um, be returning as well with some very high-profile guests. So all of that to look forward to over the coming weeks and months. Uh, but until next time, it's a goodbye from George. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye.